Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 8, Judges chapter 5. Well, the last time we met, we just charted, uh, started Judges uh, chapter 5. Um, and this is a section of scripture called the Song of Deborah. And we're going to carefully dissect this song today. The scholars have long recognized its importance. It's a victory song. It's an anthem of freedom and, and liberation. Because it was written to commemorate a, a great moment in Israel's history. It's also a very strong summation of what gets God's people into trouble. And what they have to do to be delivered from that trouble. Yet despite the admiration shown for some of the battle participants throughout this song and the heroic actions portrayed by certain central characters in that battle at the Kishon River that even God is depicted as applauding and blessing them, it all has to be taken with, with a grain of salt and with the, within this context of a relative good and not a pure good. That is, in, in this era of the judges... The various Israelite tribes had wandered so far from Yehovah that for some of them to do something that at least resembled godliness seemed so very pure when compared to the abject wickedness that had become their typical way of life. Now contrast this with Joshua and that first generation of Israelites to cross over the Jordan and take the promised land. They did have a few individual failures and, and missteps, but they were firmly rooted in the ways of Torah, and they strived dutifully to be obedient to God in every way. Now, as usual, as it seemed to be that it was Israel's way to ignore God's laws during the era of the Shoftim, it was as equally unusual for them to terribly misbehave during the conquest era of Joshua. What existed during Joshua's time of leadership wasn't necessarily the absolute heavenly ideal of good leadership and service to the Lord, but it was closer than any group had attained since, oh, perhaps the time of Adam and Eve. It was close enough to be held up as a very good example for all the future leaders of Israel to follow, and you know it probably won't even be imitated until Yeshua returns to set up his kingdom. Thus, even when the doing of so-called good occurred during this era of the judges, it usually seemed to be tainted by sin in some way or another. Now, it's been a while, but quite some time ago, I talked with you about the various kinds of literature that forms the Bible. There's narrative, there's prose, there's accounting records, poetry, legal language, and, of course, there's song, to name a few. And it's key to understand which kind of literature we're looking at, if we're going to take it in the proper context. Historical narrative, for instance, ought to be taken the most literally, because it's meant to impart information and facts to us. Poetry was used to help us more easily remember and transmit an event or a principle to future generations, and some liberties were taken with words so that the proper rhythm and rhyme could be achieved. Now, song is usually employed to commemorate an especially important event, and it's designed so that it could be sung 
simultaneously by many as a communal celebration, just like we do when we gather together and sing praise and worship songs. But song also tends to be that form of biblical literature where the most liberties with the realities of its subject are taken. Exaggeration is the norm, and primarily the more emotion-packed and aggrandizing details are those that are included. It's anything but a balanced view that's offered. But the nature of a song is also that it tends to be more sensitive and relative to a specific time or era than most other forms of literature. Now, by sensitive and relative, I mean that songs tend to capture and then reflect the specific mood of a certain rather small slice of history. By way of example, during the first half of the 1940s, songs in the U.S. and in most nations captured a mood that totally revolved around the reality of World War II. The mood changed and ranged from hope to grave concern for families to political themes of unity and self-sacrifice. There were the sad songs, remembering loved ones that were far away or lost in the conflict. The meaning and impact of certain words and phrases of those 40 songs can only be understood in relation to World War II. During the 50s era, the songs also captured the mood of our nation, and it was a different mood than the 40s because we were finally at peace. Now it was a happy days mood of relief, and of frivolousness, and of innocence, and of enjoying the simple life. Those songs of the late 60s and early 70s reflected a new mood, a mood of rebellion against authority and against traditions and a mistrust of institutions, a free-for-all lifestyle, the new drug-oriented culture of self-pleasure and then the resulting darkness and depression of the human soul. The point is that songs from every era have their own sense to them. One will not understand it unless one understands the realities of that particular time. I wonder how someone 500 years from now might attempt to interpret rap. It'll be utterly nonsensical without a thorough understanding of the times. Well, the same goes for this Song of Deborah that we're studying. Now, scholars have had a pretty difficult time in making sense out of this fifth chapter of Judges just because it is a song. So it reflects a short slice of Israelite history, and so it takes many liberties with words and phrases. Thus, when the Song of Deborah is examined stanza by stanza, by taking the usual fully literal high road of scriptural study or exegesis, we'll kind of find ourselves lost in the woods. Some of the lines of this song are so difficult to unravel that there's nothing even approaching a majority or a consensus view among scholars of its meaning. And I think that indeed this problem is primarily owed to the ignoring of the era, the ignoring of the changing and evolving Hebrew culture and simply trying instead to translate those words as though history was static and the context of the events didn't matter. Now I'm going to remind you that I am teaching this entire book of Judges based on my confident belief that we are currently reliving the time of the Judges. The circumstances are so eerily similar that it really ought to send shivers up our spines. We're in a time 
when enormous segments of both Judaism and Christianity have so embraced the pagan world that those of us who are determined to stick to the unchanging truths of the Word of God are seen as ignorant, maybe even haters of peace and humanity. Our religions are as fractured as were the tribes of Israel. We have thousands upon thousands of denominations that spend more time denouncing and ridiculing one another than praying for and loving one another. And what we need is for those who love God to cry out and ask Him to send us a deliverer, just like in the time of the judges. The era of the judges ended with the setting up of a united Israelite kingdom under one king, David. The era we're in today is going to end with the setting up of a united, ideal Israelite kingdom the Bible calls the kingdom of God. And it too will be under one king, Yeshua, the descendant of David. Now since we read all of Judges 5 the last time we met, let's look at it again but take it in bite-sized chunks today. Open your Bibles to Judges chapter 5 and we're going to read the first five verses together. Judges chapter 5, that's page 274 in your complete Jewish Bibles. Judges chapter 5. On that day, Devorah and Barak, the son of Vino-Am, sang this song. When leaders in Israel dedicate themselves and the people volunteer, you should all bless Adonai. Hear kings, listen princes, I will sing to Adonai. I will sing praise to Adonai, the God of Israel. Adonai, when you went out from Seir, when you marched out from the field of Edom, the earth quaked and the sky shook. Yes, the clouds poured down torrents. The mountains melted at the presence of Adonai, at Sinai, before Adonai, the God of Israel. The first verse speaks of Devarah and Barach singing this song. Now this doesn't mean that Barach actually helped compose it. Rather it's only that Barach was a nearly equal partner with Deborah in this victory so he gets nearly equal billing. Other verses make it abundantly clear that Deborah wrote this song. In fact, where Barach is included he's often spoken of as a judge right along with Deborah. Now immediately in verse 2 we get some strange words that are usually translated into what amounts to little more than a good guess at what they mean. Now, this is because where in most Bibles we will typically find the words and the leaders in Israel dedicate themselves. In fact, what it literally says is when men let grow their hair in Israel. When men let grow their hair in Israel. Now, in Hebrew, the phrase is bifroah perot. Now, I'm not so sure that leaders is what's actually intended here, and neither are many of the Hebrew sages. This phrase definitely has something to do with hair, but exactly what it's getting at is a little difficult to discern. It doesn't fit any standard or understood, at least currently understood, Hebrew idiom. This strange phrase is representative of the reason for my lengthy preface this morning about how 
it's so key to recognize that the meaning of a song is singularly dependent on that narrow slice of time in which it was created. Now, obviously, Hare was carrying some kind of commonly understood cultural meaning among the northern Israelite tribes at the time of its composition. But Hare has always been a symbol of strength and purity among the Hebrews, and we see this especially demonstrated in the vows of the Nazarite, who must not cut his or her hair during the entire period of their vow. And then when that vow has ended, they closely crop off their hair, and they offer it as part of a purification sacrifice at the altar of burnt offering in the temple. Matter of fact, that was still traditional in Yeshua's day, and it continued right until the temple's destruction in 70 AD, as we find St. Paul participating in this exact kind of ritual in the book of Acts. I think it's no coincidence that it's not going to be long in the book of Judges before we read of the Shofet Samson and his mystical hair during this same general era. Hair on men was apparently still carrying some type of heightened spiritual or religious meaning among the northern Israelite tribes. We also know that the Canaanite men at that time tended to keep very short hair and trimmed beards. They even braided their beards. So it would have been logical that Israel ought to pretty much do the opposite as the Canaanites so as to maintain a distinct and separate visual identity. Unfortunately, just as believers today tend to be outwardly indistinguishable from non-believers, so it was that the Hebrews in the era of the Shoftim, the judges, sought to look and behave generally like their Canaanite neighbors. I see this matter of the hair as a reference by Deborah to extolling the virtues of these northern Israelite tribesmen who showed up to do battle by their adopting a Nazarite-like dedication, very uniquely Torah-oriented, to this renewed holy war and to shunning the appearance of the Canaanites that Israelite society in general had adopted, and thus moving back towards God and away from the Canaanites in so doing. Now, since such a vow is completely voluntary, a Nazarite vow, I think the association between the hair and a Nazarite orientation also fits rather neatly with the next phrase that speaks of the people volunteering, or better, offering themselves willingly, which again is precisely a a Nazarite-like trait. And what I just offered you as my take on verse 2 also seems to fit pretty well with the final words of that same verse, you should all bless Yehovah. In other words, some courageous Hebrew men have finally seen the problem with Israelite society and realized that by behaving in such a wicked manner, God was going to leave them to their troubles. So they repented. They took on the more pious ways of the Nazarites. They volunteered. They rose up in a religious fervor to go against the tide. And in so doing, they led the way to reviving God's favor with Israel. Then the Lord responded in turn by leading them to victory over their Canaanite oppressors. Therefore, Deborah's conclusion is that the general population of Israel should bless the Lord for setting 
all of this into motion and bringing about this wonderful victory for Israel. But the word that's often translated as bless, where it says you should all bless Yehovah, is actually a little misleading. Really, it more means to kneel in praise and in adoration than to bless in the way we moderns tend to think about the term bless. So Israel should submit with bowed heads before God in praise for what he has done. Now, interestingly, what we actually have here is a play on words because this is a song. The Hebrew word chosen to explain what Israel's logical response to their deliverance ought to be is Barak, similar in the name of the, as the name of the Israelite military leader, Barak. Now there's just a very minor, minor spelling difference in that Barak, the man, is spelled Beit Resh Kuf, while Barak, that means to praise, is spelled Beit Resh Kof. Now when spoken, they're nearly indistinguishable. Here is the bottom line. Deborah is rightly giving God all the credit for their deliverance from Yavin, king of Hatzor, and Sisera, military leader of the Canaanite allied forces. Well, in verse 3, Deborah turns her attention now to the Gentiles. The kings and the princes mentioned in this song were certainly Gentiles because Israelite had no royalty at this time. Essentially, Deborah is telling her audience that while Gentile kings and princes give their praises to their false gods and deities, and were likely to probably be wondering which of the mystery Babylon gods had sided with Israel in their victory, that she, Deborah, as the main leadership figure of Israel, was appropriately praising Yehovah, the one God of Israel, with the implication, of course, the Gentiles, that the Gentiles ought to learn from this and do the same. Well, next Deborah sings of Yehovah going out from Seir in Edom. Now, there's always been this interesting connection between God and the area of Mount Seir in Edom. Edom, of course, was the territory of Jacob's twin brother Esau. And the connection is that often Mount Sinai is said to be located in the direction of Seir. Deuteronomy 33.2 says, Adonai came from Sinai. From Seir he dawned on his people, shone forth from Mount Paran, and with him were myriads of holy ones. At his right hand was the fiery law for them. Now I bring this up again as yet another probable nail in the coffin of Mount Sinai supposedly being located on the tip of the Sinai Peninsula marked by St. Catherine's Monastery as is a as has been a pretty has been a Christian tradition since about 350 AD but really all archaeological and biblical evidence is that Mount Sinai is actually somewhere on the western end of the Arabian Peninsula and Seir and Edom is on the northwesternmost portion of the Arabian Peninsula in any case here in around the 12th century BC about the time of Deborah and Barak we have this very clearly stated connection with Mount Sinai being in the general direction of Edom. 
Well, the image created by verses 4 and 5 is of God as this divine warrior leader who so powerfully comes out to fight for his people Israel that the whole earth quakes and the sky shakes. And while the earth quaking and the sky shaking is probably mostly poetic hyperbole, it is in reference to the ancient mindset of just why the clouds would pour down torrents of rain. Now, this heavy rain it's speaking of was certainly not fanciful. It was actually this unexpected cloudburst that swayed the battle in Barak's favor and was the Canaanites' and Sisera's undoing. Now, speaking of that, what reality there actually was to the earthquaking and sky-shaking may well have been that it was all from a violent thunderstorm directly overhead. This, this battle at the Kishon River probably took place in the summer when the river was close to dry or just barely flowing and the only rain to fall in Israel is from the occasional passing thunderstorm. But it's also when you can get deadly and amazingly powerful flash floods as a result. Now those of us who live in Florida have experienced firsthand the earthquaking and sky-shaking awe of lightning and the cannon-like thunder of a severe thunderstorm where inches of rain can fall in less than an hour. I was in Israel, as a matter of fact, about three or four years ago when an enormous flash flood suddenly wiped out a substantial bridge in about a hundred yards of the main highway that routed us all along the Dead Sea. Boulders the size of trucks were rolled down what had been up to that moment a wadi, a dry riverbed from the mountains where the rain fell that were, oh, a couple of miles away. Two hikers were overtaken and killed in that event. And it appears that this is the sort of thing that must have happened to Sisera and his army near the base of Mount Tabor. Let's read a little more, chapter 5. We're going to read verses 6 through 11 now. In the days of Shamgar, the son of Anath, in the days of Yael, the main roads were deserted. Travelers walked the byways. The rulers ceased in Israel. They ceased until you arose, Deborah, arose a mother in Israel. They chose new gods when war was at the gates. Was there a shield or a spear to be seen among Israel's 40,000 men? My heart goes out to Israel's leaders and to those among the people who volunteer. All of you, bless Adonai. You who ride white donkeys sitting on soft saddle blankets, and you walking on the road. Talk about it. Louder than the sound of the archers at the watering holes will they sound as they retell these righteous acts of Adonai, the righteous acts of his rulers in Israel. Then Adonai's people march down to the gates. Verse 6 describes not only this dire situation in the land of Israel before the battle, but also draws a contrast between this awesome glory and power of the holiness of God that Israel had experienced at Mount Sinai versus the present darkness and degradation and disgrace punctuated by idolatry into which Israel had sunk before the ministry of Deborah. 
Now, reference is made here to Shamgar the Shofet, who was used by God to liberate some of the southern Israelite tribes from the rule of the Philistines, even though that liberation only lasted about a generation. Now, Shamgar probably predated Deborah by just a few years. The mention of Yael, the Kenite woman who killed Sisra, is meant to operate in conjunction with the mention of Shamgar to show that A, the oppression of Yabin, king of Hatsor, was nothing new, but it had been ongoing for several years. And B, that since Yael was contemporary to to the song, that the conditions of that Canaanite subjugation only officially ended upon Yael's assassination of of Sisra. And C, it shows us that conditions were quite different between the northern and southern Israelite tribes. Well, while Shamgar was liberating the south against the Philistines, those northern Israelite tribes were suffering a different kind of oppression from a whole different group of Canaanites. Since we know that the oppression of the Israelites was a direct result of God allowing or even causing the tribes to be oppressed as a punishment for their idolatry and their disobedience, we can readily see that no tribe, north or south, was living according to Torah, nor were any of them exempt from God's disdain. Well, the precarious position of the northern tribes is that they couldn't even use the main roads to operate their trade caravans for fear of attack by the enemy. Thus, they had to use the byways, paths, located off the beaten track. And, of course, that made travel difficult at best. The leaders of Israel had shrunk back in fear and they either simply capitulated to the Canaanites or they became invisible and inactive. Either way, Israel had no real leaders to help them because the tribal leaders really only had self-preservation at any cost in their minds. Then, says verse 7, Deborah arose as a mother in Israel. Now this is one of those Middle Eastern colloquialisms. Recall that the patriarchs of Israel were called the fathers of Israel. Well, no men would stand up and lead, so God raised up a female leader, Deborah, and thus she was the mother of Israel. She would shepherd Israel. She would put herself at risk for her children's sake. She would dare to defy the Canaanites and be bold to assert to Israel that they had gone terribly astray when, frankly, nobody wanted to hear it. You know, good leaders don't concern themselves with popularity as much as doing what is right and good for their charges. Well, verse 8 explains that faced with these daunting circumstances, Israel's reaction was not to turn back to the God who had redeemed them from Egypt, who had given them the Torah and then given them a land of their own, but instead they chose other gods. Well, this meant two things. First, some chose the gods of their oppressors. That is, they just appeased the Canaanites by giving in and essentially becoming Canaanites by their worshipping their oppressors' gods. Second, Others appealed to gods who weren't necessarily the gods of their oppressors, but they were nonetheless mystery Babylon gods, in hopes that these gods would show them favor and somehow liberate them from Yavin. Well, inherent in this choice is abandoning Yehovah. 
Now, saying that there was not a spear or a shield among the northern tribes does not mean that they had no weapons. Rather, it simply means they had no courage. They didn't have the fortitude to fight for their own liberty. They refused to rise up in civil disobedience because they just weren't prepared for the risk or the sacrifice. And says verse 8, Deborah gives much of the credit for Israel's turnaround and their subsequent victory to what the complete Jewish Bible calls Israel's leaders for standing up and doing what was right in the face of great danger because their brave and pious actions roused many others to accept their call to arms. Now these particular leaders talked about in verse 8 are not to be confused with the ancestral tribal chieftains and elders of Israel although probably many of them came forward. Rather, this is a reference back to verse 2 and those men who grew their hair. Those who offered themselves up for service to God like a Nazarite would. In the form of offering up themselves to at least try and lead their people back to the ways of Torah and towards actively fighting their captors instead of just becoming as one of them. Okay. Now for a brief sermonette. I'm praying that the wheels are turning in your minds and that the Lord is stirring your hearts as you've heard this story of the judges because I'm not going to cease from saying that we are currently reliving that era. Passivity and tolerance and discouragement was Israel's lot because A. Their leaders stopped leading except to fulfill their own personal agendas and B. The people rationalized their falling away from God by either denying it or blaming it on circumstances beyond their control. And the song of Deborah especially makes that point. Now, politics has always been the human way to lead, even before the term politics was invented. Even among many despots, they usually arrive in power because of alliances they've created or, or because they deceive the people. They now rule through false promises. The one of personal power and control and wealth is generally the motive of a political style of leadership, whether that leadership is of a monarchy or a dictatorship or even of a democracy. They try to determine what appeals to the people and then give them just enough of it to at least get into power and sometimes a little, they give a little more to hang on to that power a bit longer. Now what precisely it is that appeals to the people doesn't really matter as long as it isn't something that curtails the political leader's aspirations indefinitely. Listen to me now. Passivity of the masses is the goal of the political leader. Because passivity means the people aren't resisting that leader's philosophies and his agenda. Intolerance is the mode of the leadership. While tolerance is the leadership's requirement that's always set down upon the people. Does any of this sound familiar? Shepherding, on the other hand, is the godly description of how to lead. Shepherding in no way means mild or meek or powerless leadership that depends upon the goodness of the masses. Rather, from a 
biblical perspective, it means that the leadership's goal is first to obey the Lord and his commands, and second, to do all for the welfare of the people. A godly leader understands that by their personal obedience to God, the people's best interests will automatically be attained. But by definition, that means that the leader will give up his will to serve the Lord's will. He will suffer the most. He will not always be popular, nor is he or she likely to amass personal wealth. The agendas for the nation are to be set by the divine, not the human mind. Action among the people is always needed and required, as the leader is really only there to administer God's justice, God's guidance, and God's wisdom. Well, as we approach the election of 2008, the lament of many in America is, where's the leadership? Congress is paralyzed. Because no matter what way they choose, it opens them up for criticism, which they don't want, so they do what's easy and popular. Those who want to be in power have become marketers who search for slogans that connect with the most voters. Then they change their views to meet whatever the majority of voters seems to agree with for the moment. Where's the leadership in our churches and synagogues? Who's going to stand up and say the things that are politically incorrect, but they are the principles of God? Who's going to hold God's laws above our contrived humanitarian concerns? Who will stand and say that Islam is a false religion of death that must be dealt with and that Israel is God's chosen people and the land belongs exclusively to them. Who will risk being called a hater by saying that homosexuality is wrong and it's an abomination before the Lord in every circumstance? But even riskier, what Christian leader will tell his followers that some of our Christian leadership of the past were anti-Semitic, and thus some of the doctrines we hold as inviolable have no scriptural basis, and were created out of a desire to rid the church of its Hebrew heritage. Folks, you know, we're on the one hand called by Yeshua to be obedient to our human governments. We're always to pay our taxes, obey our traffic laws, honor our contracts, pay back our legal debts. On the other hand, when government requires us to disobey the word of God, then we have to go against the tide, just as those who grew their hair did in Deborah's day. When government says we must accept all religions as equal, we cannot. When our leadership says that abortion is a good thing and gay marriage is a wonderful thing, we cannot agree with it by being silent. When our politicians and our synagogue and church leaders tell us that it's only fair and even-handed that Israel be divided up and given over to their enemies for the sake of love and world peace, we must not shrink to the background. When any man says that he has come to deliver us from the troubles of the world, we must shout back to him that there is only one deliverer and his name is Yeshua and then we must accept whatever the consequences are for our stance. This is what the Lord expects from us, his followers.
Well, verse 10 now talks about three different classes of people who are told to pay attention to what has happened and to pay heed. Now, the idea is not to limit this to three classes only, but it just makes them representative of all the classes of people from the greatest to the least. Those who ride on white donkeys represent the first class. You remember anything about the donkey that Jesus rode into Jerusalem upon? White was a greatly prized animal because it was rare among donkeys and horses. Thus, royalty only rode on white beasts of burden wherever possible. Jesus riding on that donkey infuriated the Romans and the Jewish elite because everyone understood that he was indicating his own royalty. Those sitting on soft saddle blankets represents the next class. Such things were luxuries that only the wealthy and the aristocracy could afford. When a person was seen riding any color of animal but sitting atop a nice cushiony saddle blanket, it was a visible sign of his status as wealthy and elite. Now those who walked on the road represented the third class. Walking was the way that the poor and the common folk traveled. So we see that all classes are being indicated by the choice of these three examples. Well, verse 11 is another of those problematic sections of the Song of Deborah. Our complete Jewish Bible says, louder than the sound of archers at the watering holes, while other versions like the complete, uh, rather the uh, King James Version, will explain that the archers are not at the watering place, but are actually held away from the water holes. Even more, the Hebrew word chatzatz, that is being translated into archers, is a very obscure Hebrew word that's been used for many things. For instance, some have translated it even as musicians, and I must say that's perhaps the very least accepted translation. Part of the problem is that what scripture here has been handed down to us, there's no verb that's used in the first part of the sentence, so it's very challenging on how to reconstruct it. Now, my study indicates to me that the complete Jewish Bible has done a good job in essentially translating it to mean that after the battle is over and won, these archers, these soldiers with their, bow on, with their bows, will go to get water, and like soldiers at a bar, recounting their war stories, these archers will swap tales of their own experiences. They'll show each other their battle scars and so on. However, as the end of the verse explains, they're also going to give God all the glory. They will retell the righteous acts of Jehovah, their ultimate divine warrior leader. And they'll also give credit to those men who grew their hair, who led them into battle. This stanza of the song ends with the words, Then Jehovah's people marched down to the gates. Well, these gates specifically refer to city gates. But in this particular context, it means that they left the relative safety of their villages to go to war. Now, this is important, because before Deborah encouraged the people to rise up, and until she enlisted Barak as the military leader, the people of Israel were content to cower, as unnoticed as possible, behind those metaphorical city gates. I'll let you ponder that for a while as a fitting in to today's lesson.